Hello, welcome to Out of the Box Stories. I'm your host, Allison Paradise. It's a rare treat to meet an adult who is truly curious about the world and about themselves. Our guest, Barbara Wells, is one of those rare individuals. Barbara is the CEO of Priorclave North America, which is one of the only autoclave companies in the world prioritizing sustainability. Our conversation touched on topics ranging from the joys of getting older, to trusting your intuition, to having confidence in yourself. It was an honor to share an hour with this amazing woman. Barbara joined me from her home in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I was recording from my new temporary home in Holland, Michigan, which is about three hours away. Hi, Barbara. It's so good to see you. And you, Allison. You know, we haven't met very often, but I wouldn't miss a chance to see you again. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Could you share a little bit about how we know each other? Sure. I was working with Bernie Youngblood a few years back to build an autoclave company at the very same time that you were building my green lab. And we both had a big focus on sustainability, so it was a love match. It was. Bernie was the first person I met who sold laboratory products who was actually excited about the work that we were doing at my green lab. Mm -hmm. Everyone else told me that I was crazy or that nobody cared about sustainability. But then I met Bernie at a conference in San Diego and we sat down and had lunch. And he said, this is going to be huge. How can I help? It was incredible. Mm -hmm. He deserves so much credit for his vision. Uh, that has been the course that Prior Clave North America has followed is the one that he envisioned as well, which was pretty radical for a laboratory equipment manufacturer from London and also for just a, a lowly distributorship in North America. Who's thinking about that? You were. Yes, and he found you and we have followed that course, even though Bernie has gone on to greener pastures. It has been the reason that I stuck with Priorclave and took over Bernie's role is the sustainability aspect. I remember the first time we met, you were presenting with Delphine from the University of California, Riverside. Do you remember her? Yes. Can you share a bit about your work together? Oh, that's the Riverside uh, study, comparing the water and energy consumption of jacketed versus non-jacketed steam autoclaves. How thrilling is that for a niche? But what it was Delphine, really, who set that up, and Bernie. They monitored the use of what most university labs use by way of a steam autoclave uh, and compared with actual data, how much water and energy this standard autoclave was using versus the non-jacketed prior clave. And it astounded everyone, I think. Nobody expected how much they're using. They are the hogs of every room they're in for energy and water. The study Barbara's referring to was done by Delphine Fagero from the University of California, Riverside in 2016. Delphine found that autoclaves on her campus were using an average of 84 kilowatt hours a day, which 
for reference, is the equivalent of four old ultra-low temperature freezers or six or seven new ultra-low temperature freezers. It's a lot. And that each autoclave was using about 650 gallons of water per day. In contrast, she also metered the prior clave unit and found that that unit only used about 16 kilowatt hours per day and about 44 gallons of water. So it had a savings of 81% for energy and 93% for water. This was such an impactful study because no one had ever metered autoclaves before. No one had ever quantified what the energy and water savings could be from switching to a more sustainable autoclave. The first time I really saw you in person was when you were presenting with Delphine at the California Higher Education Sustainability Conference, CHESC. <laughs> and you, you had this, we still have this vitality, this life force that just shines through you. Aww. The best way I can describe it is like Mexican jumping beans. They're just constantly in motion and feeling alive. And that is my feeling being around you alive. It's so beautiful. I think you bring that out in people, Allison. That's very kind of you to say. This is all you, though. The vitality, the aliveness, it's all you. Before we started recording, you'd mentioned that you're now at a place in your life where you can walk into a boardroom and feel like an equal to all of the people there. I'm wondering if you could share a bit about the journey you took to get to that place. Because while it may be something that we tell ourselves and that we know to be true that we're all equal, it isn't always something that we feel, especially in a business setting. And especially when we're in a situation that's dominated by a particular gender or a particular race, it can be very uncomfortable, such as in this context, which is a setting that's dominated by men. <laughs> I would love to address that first by saying getting older is terrific. I think it's a common scenario. I've certainly heard it a lot in the last few years. Even during the pandemic, you'll run into people. If you're in a public space, you might hear an older person say to a younger person, don't get old. It's terrible. Whatever you do, don't get old. And sayings like that. Have you heard people say that? Oh, yes. <laughs> My mother loves singing that tune. Well, her and pretty much everyone I know who's in their 50s, 60s, 70s and older. But it's interesting because that's not been my experience. It seems to me that the more times I go around the sun, the more I get to learn about myself and about the world. And I think it's amazing. That's right. And you have the insight into yourself and others that you can trust what you're doing in the world and trust that you deserve to be heard as well as the men at the table. And it's great getting old for a million reasons, including that kind of confidence, as well as if you have occasion to practice any kind of mindfulness in your personal life or work, uh, parts of you get a chance to shine that you didn't even know were there. 
ever. And it's just a thrill. You don't know what's going to happen next. Can you give me an example? Well, uh, this came up recently in a conversation with a friend. Um, So for me, this is an old example. But uh, one day I went to a triathlon, T-R-Y, athlon, I believe near where you are now in Muskegon, Michigan. So I went to this triathlon in Muskegon and there was the opportunity to try luge. There's a luge track near you. Really? Yes. And you got to go because how often are you going to luge? And there's an Olympian, (laughs) a former Olympian there who lets you get on the track and tells you what to do low down on the track, but it's still a thrill. I don't even, I honestly don't know what a luge is. What? It's that big sled in the sky. You start like bobsled. You go down the luge track on a bobsled or skeleton sled. And you can do this right near you. Yeah, you got to go. It's a blast. Oh my goodness. Okay, so there's ice all around the the slide. And Uh you go so fast that it burns your clothing. Holes burn in your clothing. So get an old jacket and get yourself on um, a bobsled or a skeleton. Head first or feet first. Get in there. Whoa. Okay, so continue. That's amazing. Okay, so I went to this triathlon and... Uh, excited about the luge. I already love cross-country skiing. That was one of the events. And the third event was speed skating on ice. And they had this big pile of proper speed skates. So, you know, the super long, thin blades. And I didn't really understand why there were uh, so many skates piled up in the corner. But If you went to the triathlon, you were able to go over there, pick out your size and give it a go. And I had already done the other two events and I was eating lunch and staring at the skates and I had this really visceral response. I have never been a skater. I've never been on speed skates and I knew I could do this. Like in my bones, I knew this. So I found my size and I put them on and I went out to the track And I skated my laps, and the guy who timed me said, who do you skate for? Whoa. It was, it was magic. And I was old, in my 30s, so this is my first time, and he said, call me, and explained to me about this wily world of inline speed skating, which you can do off-season, turns out that's a thing, and quite a competitive professional or semi-professional sport. And I had this ridiculous late life career in speed skating. What? I know. Isn't that weird? Allison, I looked at those skates and I could feel them on my feet and I could feel the ice under those blades. I could just feel it. And when I stepped on the ice, it felt exactly as I knew it would feel. So how many more of these things are going to happen? You have to get out there and find those piles. So, so tell me about this. The, I had no idea. Sorry, I'm like, I'm just like okay. Um, how? What? What? <laughs> so I skated for like five years hard, and I ended up having a sponsor and free gear and getting to go all around to to do this skating thing and win a little money and prizes, which were always more skating apparel. Great fun. And I just loved it. I met lots of great people. 
and found out, I mean, I'd never had a sporting life and found I just loved that. And much of uh, inline skating involves marathon or ultra marathon distance. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, meditation does not take the form of being seated. For me, ultra marathon distance activity is where I can commune with the present. So that was a gift I didn't expect. <laughs> this is how I feel about this conversation. You're easily pleased. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's because this is the essence of life. Yeah. What you're describing right now is the essence of life. Yeah. So uh, many things sprung from that serendipitous finding. If you want to hear about them. Please. Just silly things. But um, I'd never been involved in any team sports or really any teams as an adult, as we've touched on in previous conversations, we're really a very culture of independence. Be an island unto yourself. Don't form communities. Every man for himself, doggy dog. So uh, skating is a, it is a team sport, believe it or not, that uh, you skate in a pack. And I found that to be my first experience really in kind of physical collaboration. And I found that very powerful as well. Skating in unison, you know, you're inches from, or barely inches from the person in front of you and behind you. So you have a lot of responsibility to the people around you. Mm -hmm. And the power of the group is so much greater than the individual. You need that pack to go real fast. And I loved that. And I ended up being asked to coach uh, a team of adventure racers. I don't know if adventure racing is a sport that is even still popular. But What is that? Well, it used to be in the early 2000s. Uh, the biggest event was called the Eco Challenge. So you might like that. <laughs> it's a co-ed team that participates in a multi-day, multi-sport race. So if you're a little bored of triathlon, you become an adventure racer. Oh, okay. It, it's nonstop around the clock till you're finished. And there's no set course. You're given a topographical map and you have to get with your team to various checkpoints. And there's a cutoff time and that's it. So go. Uh, there are usually wilderness adventure races, but there are also urban adventure races where the cityscape takes the place of mountains. Are you, do you know what I'm talking about? I think I know what you're talking about because I feel like I've seen this in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think so because I, so I used to do ultra marathons. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's, there's a big overlap between the ultra marathon community and people who do these sorts of all night. Absolutely. Whatever it is. Same mm-hmm. people. We are the same yes. people. <laughs> so this team needed uh, to get a coach uh, who could teach them to skate in, in an urban setting because that was one of the oh, events. Oh, okay. And, gosh, I don't remember what it stood in for, whether it was a ropes course or whatever. But so I met this adventure race team and I thought they were nuts, <laughs> but was happy to teach them to skate. And of course they talked me into adventure racing with them. And that, that 
was a really heightened sense of team because you are completely dependent. You're hallucinating, your days into a race, <laughs> you have to keep each other safe. And you really don't care if you win or lose at that point. If you're as low in the pack as we were, uh, you just want to keep each other healthy and, and get to the finish line. And it was wonderfully informative and a great opportunity to, uh, they have to be co-ed teams. And usually guys have a hard time finding more than one stupid woman to, to go in the woods with them for an undetermined period of time. And so uh, it was a good opportunity to learn how to work with, with men in a whole different setting than the boardroom. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine, and that's, I'm hoping in that setting, it's a lot more equal. It was. It gave me a lot of confidence that I didn't have before. Everyone becomes so exhausted that we're really dependent on each other's areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. So even in the wilderness where we weren't skating, you know, I, I'm good at helping orienteer. So, because typically the guys look at the map and just go off and everybody trots behind them. But yeah. after our first race, I realized that, um, improvements could be made. <laughs> so, yeah, it was literally learning how to navigate the world. That's beautiful. And you just stumbled into all of this, but, yeah. but not really. Because the most telling part of that whole story is you were called to do something and you listened. Aw, yeah. Yeah. I was scared, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> That's amazing. So, okay, so what did you do after? Oh, so then uh, I, Detroit started a roller derby team. And when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s, I used to watch roller derby on a Saturday morning because they were powerful women mm -hmm. on skates. I always loved skating, even though I didn't have any. So I thought, I wonder if I could do the roller derby. Now, I was much older than everyone by this point. Um, you know, it's kind of foolish to go jump into a full contact sport. And it was really competitive. Detroit has some fine roller derby. And I did try out and I did make a team. So I did a very brief stint in the roller derby, but I, I learned a lot from those women for sure. Oh. I don't know if you know anything about roller derby. Not beyond what's in movies, so let's oh. say no. So Detroit, <laughs> the, the team, that's uh, when Whippet came out with Drew Barrymore. Yeah. 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 Our team was all in Whippet. That was filmed in Detroit. So Really? And that's the vintage. Yeah, that's my brief vintage there. So it's great because everybody has a, an, a derby name. And it has to be registered in the nation. There can only be one with your name. And we didn't, back then, we didn't know each other's real names at all or real identities. Nobody, it was the only setting I've ever been in where people didn't say, what do you do? Because it didn't matter. So what was your name, I have to ask? Oh, uh, it's more fun if you sound it out yourself. It was S-O-P-H-O-N-D-A. First name. Safonda. Payne. Last name. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was a blast. <laughs> <laughs> a 
the hardest thing about that sport for me was hitting people. It was much easier to be hit and jump back up. But learning to hit people uh, sounds really anti-Zen. But in fact, there are rules to the game. You know, you're not punching mm-hmm. them in the mouth. It's right. relatively safe hitting. And learning to use your body is really empowering, I think, as women, we're just not taught to use our bodies. From As soon as we start, we get shut down as little mm-hmm. girls. So it was great to awaken that. You're right. I can't imagine what it would be like to hit somebody. Mm-hmm. So how did you learn to overcome that? And what does it feel like? I think that I kind of reconnected with my childhood girl self before I found out that we are less than in this world. And before I found out that we were in danger all the time, I had a deep connection with the memory of playing on a playground on an, in an apartment complex where my parents and I lived when I was four. Uh, we were playing some game with a ball and we divided into two teams, skins and shirts. And I was on the skins team and having a great time and the streetlights came on and my father came out to find me and I got pulled home by my ear and shamed in front of my mother. My mother was more ashamed of me than he was. What do you mean you had your shirt off with boys? You were four. And I said, what is the difference? And they said, girls cover up. And I remember lifting up my shirt and pointing at my nipples saying, They look exactly like Tim's. (laughs) There's no difference. I was on that team and the boys didn't care. That was a strong life lesson. You know, don't go out there and play whatever we were playing, football. Mm -hmm. You can't take your shirt off. You're not like that. You get in here. And I felt shame for sure and shut it down. But roller derby allowed me to remember that feeling that day before I got caught. Uh, You know, I was having a great day. I was bruised. Other people were bruised. I was fighting for my team. I loved it. Isn't that amazing if you imagine what would have happened if you had been supported in all of that from a young age? Not that the journey isn't important, because of course it is. Also, how much faster you would have found all of this. Yes. Because you wouldn't have had it crushed out of you and then had to claw your way back to it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's absolutely true. I think for uh, all of us ladies and also for anybody who doesn't have our privilege of whiteness in America, it's a shame. We're missing Mm -hmm. so many contributions to the world from the people we shut down. Yeah, because I think people don't realize how little it takes when you're young. It takes one event like that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of adults don't even realize how significant their words can be in a moment like that Mm -hmm. that that can be all it takes in the rest of your life you believe something that's not true about yourself or about the world Mm -hmm. in that case though it was true wasn't it it would not have been popular for me as a girl to maintain right well i don't know though i mean i guess in our in our culture sure but for years, you would have been okay because you were only four in that yeah, story. Yeah, it's true. You would have been fine until for at least another six, seven years. Mm-hmm. I had a big argument as a parent years later on behalf of my daughter when she was in grade school and they had their first 
field day. Mm-hmm. And all these notices came home about, you know, send your kid in tennis shoes. And it was clear that the girls would be competing against the girls and the boys against the boys. And I really fought the whole system at that time. I found some research showing that competition is good between boys and girls in particular through those formative years. And I submitted this to the principal of the school. It got escalated. And I was just saying, why? Why are we separating these people? They're all the same height. They're Mm -hmm. all the same build. Why are we doing this? And they couldn't answer it, but it was squashed. It sets up that idea of inequality right from the beginning. Every Mm -hmm. time we separate little kids out like that, it's like, well, you're not able to participate or you're going to hurt the other people. And so it's then no wonder that little boys grow up to be men who think that women don't belong in their same group. And little girls grow up to be women who think they can't do anything. Right. With the boys. You're right. And at one point, uh, you've reminded me, the principal early on, before this was escalated, said, look, you and I both know that you're right. But what if the boys get beaten by the girls? (laughs) What? I felt like saying, I'm going to beat you down right now. You'll see how it feels. (laughs) Yeah. And this principal is um, a social worker first before an educator and before an administrator. Dang it. I had another fight for the same child in high school. She ran cross country Mm. and the boys uh, and girls had a big end of the year or season party. And it was a costume party in October. And most of the boys came dressed as Hooters servers. And I said, you know, these are 15-year-old boys. I, I said, why are you guys dressed like Hooters ser- servers? Mm-hmm. And you can picture what they, how they looked. Yes. And they said, well, every time we win a meet, coach takes us to Hooters. And I, I said, oh, that's interesting. And I approached the boys' coach and said, is this, is this how you celebrate? And he said, yeah, they love it. And I wrote a letter and um, I, it ended up, my daughter was really shamed for my letter and my activism and ended up saying she hated feminism. And (laughs) and why had I embarrassed her like this? And none of the boys would talk to her anymore. And the girls all rolled their eyes at the sight of me. Yeah, it was a bummer. Oh, my gosh. But now I'm sure they all look back and think, oh, wow, that was a powerful moment. Oh, my daughter. (laughs) At least I don't think the boys did. (laughs) No, maybe not the boys, but I'm sure the girls. Because at that age, you're supposed to reject everything that every adult does, and especially your parents. That's normal. Yeah. But to have done that anyway and give them a model for what it could look like to stand up to, that is – not okay. That's just not okay to do that. It's true. I wrote the letter in confidence and was assured by wherever I was directed to send that letter that it would be held in confidence. And it absolutely was not. It was shared with both the boys and the girls coach. And I felt so betrayed. 
all that needed to be said, I, I mean, I had a call to action in the letter. I'm in marketing. I said, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want a big to-do about it. I just don't want the coach to take the boys to Hooters and I don't want the boys to dress up with enormous fake breasts in front of a bunch of skinny cross-country girls mm-hmm. who already have eating problems, right? So let's not, can we just not do that next year? There's surely there are other eating establishments you could take people to. <laughs> that they would really like. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also think it doesn't do much to foster a lot of teamness when you celebrate by objectifying mm-hmm. half of the people on your team. Yes. Here, here. I think it must be hard to be taken seriously mm-hmm. in that context. So was it then the the experience with the inline skating and competition that had you start to see yourself more as an equal or was there a, was there something else that happened that was a dramatic shift or how did you get to a place where you were able to say yeah I'm I deserve to be here Mhm I think there was a lot of synergy with my sporting life and my professional life that helped me feel like I belong in a boardroom. Mm-hmm. I did start an environmental consulting company when I was in my 20s. And I thought I felt capable and able. And it was a successful company that became saleable. And mm-hmm. I thought, I thought before I was 30 that I already had licked that that problem. And yeah. boy was I wrong. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, it just keeps coming back. It does. Uh huh. It does. And so I think all those experiences, sports, um, failing at things, winning at things, they do give you a level of confidence. But I can't say enough good about getting old. So, what is it then about? Is it more experience or what? Or something is settling? What is it that's changing? So, I think it's a joy. There is the invisibility benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, which young women can um, achieve earlier if they cut their hair off, by the way. That's a way really? to quickly go invisible. Absolutely. Yes. Try it. That's why I keep my hair so short and have almost all my life. I used to have flowing blonde locks. And uh, one day I shaved my head and... Uh, all the people I had seen while I was at university who had talked to me one day or even asked me out couldn't see me the next day. But I did find a whole new bunch of people who could see me. I found them a lot more interesting. You can go jogging safely with no ponytail, no catcalls. It's a big difference. Honestly, you're selling cutting my hair right now. Yeah. Because that, that I just... I think for people listening who have not experienced this, you are so lucky. Um, (laughs) And I think we were talking about earlier how I thought that was over because I thought I'd gotten to the age where that was done. I was so excited. I don't want to be changing my appearance for other people in general, Mm -hmm. right? So whether it's for them for admiring or for them for ignoring, it's got to be something that's true to me. But it's definitely piquing my curiosity. Yeah of what that might be like, because to be invisible, and maybe that sh- I should also explain what that is. Why don't you explain what that is for people who might not know that well, or understand it? 
Once you reach a certain age, when you are not considered a viable, sexy partner, uh, you're completely ignored by the same men who bothered you for many, many years. But cutting your hair off is a fast forward to invisibility and the perks of invisibility. I mean, it's considered sad by many women to become irrelevant to, to men because we've based mo- much of our lives around that all-important attention mm-hmm. to secure jobs and homes and access to um, what we perceive as safety, protection. Mm-hmm. All of those things are unreal. And when, if you can get old and accept your aging self, your invisibility, and see the freedom that comes with accepting the unreality of protection, security, and worldly goods, it's just a great thing to get old. <laughs> And I wanted to clarify that I think everything you're saying applies regardless of of how you how you identify wanting a partner mm. because the the desire to please men transcends all of that because men are in positions of power and we think we want or need something from them. It doesn't matter if it's sexual or not. Mm-hmm. There's always this constant feeling that there's something that they have that we need. And so it's how do we and we're taught how to manipulate the situation to get it. Mm-hmm. That's right. And ourselves, right? And ourselves to get it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think fundamentally recognizing that that everything you need is within yourself. It's not external to you. That also helps a lot, I think, mm-hmm. in the in having that confidence of walking in and knowing knowing that that you don't need something from somebody. Because I notice that's always when I revert back to the conditioning is when I think somebody has something I need Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter man or woman, but the, the conditioning will kick in every single time. And so I have to be so aware that this person doesn't have something I need from them. There's an opportunity to work together or there's an opportunity to do something together. And if, if it's not going to happen on equal footing, then let's not have it happen at all. Well said. See, I'm getting old. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky you. (laughs) The good news is, I I think you are, you have already found and so young is um, (laughs) that if you speak from a place of authenticity, uh, you can bypass the need for the dress because people are truly attracted to authenticity. They're, even more attracted to that than they are to to cute young women, which is refreshing and yay, good news. I wish I'd (laughs) found that sooner. I'm glad you have found it. Yes. I'm just amazed that you worked this out so early. It took me so much in being basically beaten over the head to go on a retreat with myself to learn it. And you worked it out in college, you said. (laughs) That's amazing. I think the times were different as well. I think that younger people have had such a different environment. Sometimes I'll come across a reference to, say, a TV show or even a magazine that was popular in the 1970s, and it looks so progressive by today's standards. I feel like we had a leg up back then. We were being called on to consider 
women's issues. It was a, a phrase that was co- commonly used. And I don't, I haven't witnessed that watching five kids grow up. That wasn't a phrase that was common at school for them or among their peers, even at my insistence. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to come around their own ways. They've all done that, but it's been harder for them, I think. I could see that. I feel like that now with the kids that I work with, that it's much harder for them now. It's so much harder because they're saturated constantly with distractions. So just very little moments where you can come back to yourself and check in. How do I feel? It's lost yes. in all the distraction. I'm glad you brought that up. I really grappling uh, as a fairly new grandparent. I have a two and three-year-old set of grandsons and their parents are 100% devoted. They're all in and they're I'm in awe of what terrific parents they are. And I'm also concerned. I didn't want to be an annoying grandma who says or doesn't say something disapproving. So I've really been searching my soul. What is it that is bothering me about the way they're raising these kids? It's toddlers, all of us. One thing, maybe the only thing we have control over in the whole wide world is where we focus our attention. Yes. It is our biggest commodity. And at least the parents of my grandchildren are constantly demanding, look at this, look at this. And you can see these little guys' thought bubbles just bursting in air. They they don't get a chance to think their thoughts. Yeah. So I'm, th- I'm thrilled with what little I know about the work you're doing now, but I think you're giving people, young people, a chance to think their thoughts. Amen. Thank you. That's really well said. <laughs> yeah, it's space. Mm-hmm. Without any look over here, do this. There's no agenda. That's the main thing. There's no agenda. Everything we do with kids, everything we do with each other has an agenda. And that's why there's so much manipulation. There's so much one-upping to try to control things and get power from people and all of these things. And it's, yeah, there's no, nothing good comes from any of that. It's all an illusion. Yeah, it is. It's all not real. So just all that's real is what's happening right here, right now. That's it. And the sooner you can learn that, and really know it, not just tell yourself it as a story on top of another story on top of another story. I feel like people I talk to often are just painting a wall. Whatever they've read somewhere, they've just another coat of paint, another coat of paint. Well, eventually all those coats of paint, they wear through and you get to the what was beneath them. It's not real. You have to know it in yourself. You have to actually experience it. And then once you do, it changes everything. It all, all the rest just falls away. But yeah, when we work with kids, there's always an agenda. Learn this, know this, behave this way, do this. Oh my gosh, what if we just wanted to see who they were? What if we were just curious about who is this being that's on the planet right now? You know, on the other end of the spectrum, you've just made me think, you know that I've been seeing people out of the world for the last few years, mm-hmm. my parents. And even at the end of life, I I was a caregiver, but 
in the final days, we had hospice. Mm -hmm. And hospice workers know full well what they're dealing with. But they would demand the attention of dying people. Speaking more loudly. How are you feeling? Does that juice taste good? And, you know, like, <laughs> and I, it was so interruptive and I hadn't thought about it. But in sitting with people as they're dying, there are long periods in my experience of silence. But then they will, they speak. They might have something to say. And inevitably, it's not to comment on the flavor of their apple juice. <laughs> so, you know, just let's listen. And be curious. Why to the end of our lives is someone flashing? Do you want this? Do you want that? Is there any last thing I can give you to buy or consume? <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> well, because we're bred to be really good consumers, mm -hmm. right? We're conditioned to be the best of all consumers. Yeah, I never thought of it till just now. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for bringing us here. I, <laughs> Like I said, I didn't know where this was going to go. Me either. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that you didn't have an agenda. I agree that people lack curiosity in one another. And often when a question is posed, it's not about anything essential. Yeah, exactly. What, are, what do you do? Is Yeah. And... Yeah. If what we did was a true and accurate reflection of who we are, then it would be really interesting. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's so rarely the case because we're conditioned into one line of work or another. Mm -hmm. And so it's got to be one of the least interesting things to know about somebody. <laughs> yes, but we're so judgy about it as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, of course we are. Oh, that's what you do? Mm -hmm. That's where you went to school? Mm -hmm. Honestly, who cares? Yeah. Who cares? So I guess we need to be asking each other really with a full heart. Who are you? Yes. Okay, so that's how we're going to end it. Because Barbara, we've been talking, but I still have that question. Who are you? Wow. I... I love being alive, and I think curiosity is what keeps me vibrant. Uh, so in answer to your question about who I am, I would say that I am curious, and I am a caregiver. I spend a lot of my time helping other people, and most of that gives me a lot of joy. Connecting people with each other and learning from them uh, that's something, I'm going off on my own tangent now, but that's something I love about the work that I'm doing at Priorclave. Most of it's really boring and mercenary, but the clients, the customers, and the work that they're doing is just thrilling to me. They're saving the world, and we make this one little product that is helping them do that. And that's enough to get me out of bed for eight years so far. <laughs> So also, I would say that um, my mission, this is what I'd rather leave with, my mission right now is to simplify my life without smallifying it. And I think that is the challenge of getting old. We already are at a deficit of community in this country. 
at least in in my culture, my waspy culture. So when you get older, your community gets smaller, smaller, smaller. Your world gets smaller, especially if you're successful. Because if you've been successful, you've managed to buy all the crap that allows you to stay in your house and never leave. And so you get to this late stage of life and find that there's nothing left. It's so small. And all you care about is griping about how you feel physically or what you heard someone did. It's not a very, to me, a very rich existence, but simplifying is hard. It's frowned upon. We recently sold a big giant cabin, like massive cabin on four acres in the woods and moved into a teeny tiny small house, a condo no less. And I think we've lost some friends because of it. What? Yes, it's such an utterly shocking thing to do because what we've really done is said, hey, we're on the other side. We're on the dying side of life. So what's important to us? Well, it isn't taking care of that big house. And it is having time to focus on the people we love, which we can't do if we're working to take care of that place. So it's confronting people with their mortality. It's not popular in your 50s. No, it's threatening. It is threatening. And people, it shocks me, even in their 70s, they're still buying a bigger house or adding more junk, sometimes that they can't even use. Like cars, they aren't going to be able to drive in a few months or a couple of years or skis and speedboat, speedboats, you know. It's for safety. It's like, it's our safety blanket, all that consuming. Yeah. It's meant to try to fill the emptiness, mm-hmm. the insatiable emptiness that can never be filled with things. Right? Yeah. Well, I would ask you to please, um, as you meet people, because you do meet a lot of people, and as you do all the work that you're doing for other people and in your own life, I would love your counsel on how to simplify without smallifying. I love that saying so much. Gosh, you're good. You've got so many already just in this. (laughs) I'm like, I'm gonna have to borrow that one and that one. So good. You're making me feel funny, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anytime. Even coming here, I had this feeling. It's really interesting. I'm driving with the artwork. I tried to sell as much as I could Mm -hmm. before I left, but because I pretty much just decided, right, I'm moving, and I gave myself three weeks. It wasn't enough time to get rid of everything. (laughs) So I did end up having to schlep a bunch of stuff. And I'm driving the stuff that's supposed to be quote-unquote important in the car, which is a lot of the artwork, you know, whatever, jewelry, clothes, whatever things that I feel like I need. And the car is packed. I mean, it is – I can't see out the back, obviously, but I also can't see out the passenger side or the passenger (laughs) side mirror. And I've got things at my feet, and I'm wearing things on my head, and I drive a manual car, so I just have a little small divot or – you know, circle around the stick shift. (laughs) Everything else is absolutely packed up to the windshield. And, you know, I'm driving like this and it's not comfortable. But around day three, it dawns on me. Maybe. Maybe you're overcomplicating things. (laughs) (laughs) And, And this hits me, this such an obvious realization. 
that not only am I overcomplicating things with the move, but even in thinking about the project that I'm working on and just in general how I'm thinking about things in my life, that I've added too many things. There's too many things. Yes. And that the key to this being, I don't want to even say successful because that's not right. The key to this actually becoming a thing is focus and simplicity because the truth is always simple. That's why I'm loving the phrases that you're coming up with or the sayings because they're simple and the truth is always simple. It's not complicated. But remember how I think it was Mark Twain who made that saying about editing yourself. So do you remember the saying? I I don't, but somebody on the board used to say it often. Right. It takes a long time to say it simply. Yes. And so I didn't have the time to to make it short or something like that. Yes. And I think that's part of what we're encountering. Like we might know the answer is make it simpler, but it takes a lot of deep thought on, you know, do you leave the art at home or do you pack it in the car? That's part of that process. Mm -hmm. What's important? What do you actually need? I cannot wait to learn from you. It's such a gift to learn all of this. And for you to have shared your wisdom, thank you. Thank you, Allison. I'm so glad to be here. Well, hopefully I'll talk to you again soon then, yeah? I hope so. I'm going to have to come see you if you if you don't. Deal. Bye. Bye, Allison. Bye.